You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right, if you guys would go ahead and take your seats and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. We're going to be looking at Mark, chapter 9, verses 2 through 8. Uh, We have some visitors here. What we're doing is we're continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark. We go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through books of the Bible. Uh, And tonight we come to the account of the transfiguration. Um, Now the transfiguration of Jesus Christ is is a very important and famous text of Scripture. Uh, Some of you, maybe really the only time you ever think about the word transfiguration is when you're considering Harry Potter films. Uh, But this is not that kind of transfiguration. Uh, That is fake. This is a historical event. Um, But this is a really, really important uh, portion of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And it's so important that it's recorded in all three of the synoptic Gospels. Um, And just FYI, I'll be drawing from all three of the synoptic Gospels this evening. Um, But sadly, many Christians don't give this event the attention and meditation that it deserves. Um, Often we read one of the passages... Uh, on the Transfiguration, whether it be Mark 9, Luke 9, or Matthew 17. Um, and then we just kind of go on and say, well, that was weird, right? Or like, that was kind of an odd odd thing I just read, whatever. And I just go on with the rest of my reading, right? It tends to be, I think, how a lot of Christians think about the Transfiguration. Was, well, that was cool, or that was strange, and then they just go on. Uh, but let me put this to you. This account is full of beauty and glory, This account is about the glory and majesty of Christ. And it's also full of encouragement for us as his disciples. I believe that the purpose of the transfiguration is to encourage the people of God. Now let me explain what I mean by giving some background and setting the context for the passage we're about to read. Remember, I I wasn't here last week, so we're going to set the stage and remind you. If you weren't here, pretend like you were. Here's Here's what's been going on. Jesus has just said some really, really hard things in the, in the most recent passages we've looked at in Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 27 through chapter 9, verse 1. Jesus has, has said some difficult things. He said that he must suffer and be rejected and be violently killed. Right? He's prophesied his own death. He also prophesied he would rise from the dead as well. But nevertheless, he prophesied his own suffering and death. Peter then opposed Jesus and was strongly rebuked by Jesus. Then Christ went on to say that if anyone wants to be his disciple, if anyone wants to be a Christian, that they must follow him and be prepared to endure suffering. Just as he's going to suffer, if anyone would come after him, they must take up their cross, deny themselves, and follow him. After that, after Jesus gives that call to discipleship, warning people, you will suffer if you're going to follow me, Jesus then goes on to give a strong argument for why we should follow him. He says that eternal loss, eternal judgment, and eternal destruction awaits the one who refuses the call of discipleship. But, on the other hand, whoever lays down their life and follows Jesus will gain everything in the life to come. Now that's a lot, but that's what we've seen so far. But there's some hard stuff to swallow there, and sometimes we forget this because we go so slow through books of the Bible. This was all said in one sitting. This was all said... This is one big conversation. Jesus prophesies his suffering to his disciples. Peter rebukes him. Jesus rebukes Peter in return. And then Jesus turns to the crowd and gives the call to discipleship. This is all one big 
scene. It's one big setting. So this is all, all these hard things are said all at once. And you can imagine, put yourself in the position of the disciples, right? Imagine thinking that following the Messiah was going to be a political and military triumph, right? That's what most first century Jews thought it was going to mean whenever Messiah came, political and military victory. But then imagine being told for the first time that actually being a disciple of the Messiah means that you're going to suffer and it's going to be full of pain and it's going to be full of mockery and hatred from the unbelieving world and maybe even your own martyrdom. Imagine that first time you've ever heard that and you expected the exact opposite. You see, while Jesus did say that those who follow him will gain everything in the life to come, the harsh realities of discipleship in this life are still going to be really hard to deal with at times, right? Amen? Like, we've, we've dealt with some of those as Christians. Even though we know eternal glory lies ahead for us, the hardships of this life are really difficult sometimes, especially as you suffer for being a Christian. So in light of that, Jesus now decides to encourage his disciples. Um, and he's going to do so by allowing some of them, three of them, to get a foretaste, to get a preview of the glory that awaits them, to get a preview of the glory of his kingdom. He'll allow a few of his disciples to see him in his splendor and his glory and majesty, and he'll allow them to see and hear things that will put a strong resolve in their hearts to be faithful in the face of the opposition of the world. So this whole account we're about to look at really is meant to encourage the disciples of Christ, both then those who saw it and us uh, reading it in the scriptures. This, this account we're about to read is meant to show us that Jesus really is worthy of all of our suffering, that Jesus really is the Messiah, that Jesus really is the Son of God, and that Jesus really is the only one who matters at the end of the day. What we're about to look at was meant to encourage those who saw it, and therefore it is meant to encourage us because it was written down, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, for our instruction. It was written down for us. So really you could consider this passage to be some fuel for discipleship. Right? Fuel for discipleship. In the previous passage, chapter 8, verses 34 through chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus has given us good reasons to follow him logically. But now he's going to encourage our hearts and warm them to press on in faithfulness through hard times and persecution. And I pray that the preaching of the word this evening does that. Right? May God help us to just get a glimpse of the glory of the Lord. Just throwing this out there, there, there's not really anything in this text that I tell you, now go and do this. Right? I mean, there, there, there's, there's some of that, but that's only, uh, uh, I don't know if I'd call it small. It's not the, that's not the only facet of this text. Really what this text is meant to do is help you to see who it is that you're following. Because if you get a glimpse of who he is, just a glimpse of the majesty of Christ is going to give us hope to carry on as his disciples no matter what comes. So I pray that God would help us to see this evening. All right? Now, as a sign of respect for our God, if you would and you're able, please stand with me for the reading of his inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. This is Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 8. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. 
And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would reveal your word to us. Open our hearts to receive the word that was just read. Open our spiritual eyes so that we might behold the glory of Christ. As we sang, plant your truth deep in our hearts and encourage us by your word as your people. Please do good for us now as we sit under the ministry of your word and show us your Son, our Savior. We ask for this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. So Mark begins by telling us that six days have passed since Jesus has been declared the Messiah, foretold his suffering and death, rebuked Peter, and made the call to discipleship. Again, that's chapter 8, verses 27 and following. Right, so, and, and Mark mentions six days passing. Uh, since he mentions that, what he's doing is he's linking the events of our text this evening uh, with the events and words of the previous scene. Right? So we have good reason to see them connected in our interpretation of this passage. Jesus' promise at the end of chapter 8 and beginning of chapter 9, his promise of future glory, a coming judgment, his coming kingdom, and eternal life are tied to what happened six days later in our passage. What the three disciples are about to see in the transfiguration is a microcosm, right? It's a small picture of the future glory that Jesus had spoken about. Right? You could consider it a sneak peek or a preview or a down payment of sorts on the glory that was to come later. So Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up a high mountain, right? And in Luke's account, in Luke chapter 9, actually gives us some more information. Luke says they go up on a high mountain to pray. And that's important because I think Luke says a couple of things that lead us to believe that this event actually happened at night. Maybe you've never thought about it that way, but I think this happened at nighttime. Uh, Looking at Luke's account of this, in chapter 9, verse 32 of his gospel, we read that the disciples had actually fallen asleep before being woken up (laughs) and, and seeing the glory of Christ. Now, since it was customary for Jesus to pray all night before important events in his life, right, the night before he selected the 12 apostles, he prayed all night. Uh, the night before his crucifixion in Gethsemane, he prayed all night. So the fact that Jesus, it's his custom to pray all night, and since Jesus took them up on a mountain to pray, and the fact that they fell asleep while praying, which they did in Gethsemane, leads me to believe that this was a nighttime event, right? And if I'm right, it's debated. We can fight later about that if you want to. I think I'm right and you're wrong. Um, <laughs> if I'm right, then, then this whole account actually, I think, becomes more beautiful to think about. This is nighttime up on a high mountain. It is black all around them. So keep that in mind. So again, nighttime, Jesus selects these three men to go up and pray with him on a mountain before a very significant event. Now, the fact that they go up on a high mountain is also important for our understanding of this. And that's because in the Bible, mountains are places of divine revelation. Right? If you read your Old Testament very much, and you should, it's scripture, it's the word of God for your edification. 
In the Old Testament, we see that whenever God wants to speak or he wants to show something to someone, whenever there's a major revelation that is to take place, God's often pleased to reveal things on a mountain. We see this in the book of Exodus. God meets with Moses where? Mount Sinai. And he gives revelation to him. He gives the law to him. We see this with Elijah, where he meets God on Mount Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai, right? It's actually the same mountain. Elijah meets with God, and he hears the still small voice, right? You guys know that passage? So this is a theme in the Old Testament. God gives revelation on mountains. And now we see Jesus taking these three disciples up on a mountain with him. And they are going to receive a huge, like a major revelation from God concerning Jesus Christ, his son. Now, before we go any further, let me address a common question that people often have when they read this first verse, uh, chapter, or chapter 9, verse 2. People ask this, why did Jesus pick Peter, James, and John? Right? Why those three? Why not all the twelve? And the answer is, I don't know. <laughs> right? I don't know, and you don't know either. No one knows. <laughs> I feel like Trump up here. No one knows. I don't know. You don't know. Um, <laughs> uh, the answer is, we don't know. Right? We're not told. We do see in the Gospels that Peter, James, and John were Jesus' inner circle within the twelve. Um, they were Jesus' closest friends, and there's a few different instances in the Gospels where Jesus takes these three disciples aside and permits them to see something that the other nine disciples don't get to see. Right? These three are his inner circle. But we don't know why these three. We just know that that's what Jesus decided to do. But maybe there's a lesson to learn already. Right? Here's a freebie for you. Uh, there's a lesson here already about the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here, here it is. Not everyone gets the same advantages or privileges in this life. Not everybody receives the same blessings, and that's okay. Right? Just throwing that out to you. It's, it's a free one. It is okay that we don't all get the same thing. Jesus decided that these three men would receive the astounding privilege of witnessing the transfiguration... And by default, he determined that the other nine wouldn't receive this great blessing and privilege. He is the sovereign. He decides what men will receive and what they won't. And not everyone gets the same things in life. Not everyone receives the same blessing. Right? And just, I, I, I have to say this. Get mad at me if you want. Maybe we as American Christians being slammed with socialist agendas left and right who are told that everyone should have exactly the same everything or there is some cosmic injustice would do well to see here that Christ determines what we get and that we should be glad for the blessings that we do have and that not everyone gets the same things in life. Right? So like, there's something for you to chew on uh, politically from a Christian worldview. Right? I think it's a valuable, quick lesson to see in the fact that Jesus chose three and not all the twelve to witness this. All right? he, he's the one who determines the blessings that we get in life, and it's okay that not everyone gets the same thing. Remember that. Let that inform your worldview a little bit. But again, we don't know why these three. We just know that Jesus was pleased to choose them. So Peter, James, John, and Jesus go up a high mountain at night to pray. And then we read this. And he was transfigured before them. And that's it. Right? That's all. It's kind of frustrating, isn't it? That's all that Mark decides to read about the transfiguration proper. Right? Just Jesus was transfigured before them. Mark does not care to tell us how it happened. Actually, none of the Gospels do. Luke 9, Matthew 17. He will search in vain to see how this happened. He just tells us that Jesus was transfigured. 
Now, the word transfigured here in the original means to change in appearance. The Greek word we translate transfiguration is actually the word that we get metamorphosis from. Um, it, means, it means to change in appearance. So just real quick, Jesus was not changed in substance or nature here, right? Rather, his appearance was changed. What you saw about him was changed. But how? Right? How was it changed? Mark doesn't really say much. Matthew clues us in with what is my favorite detail about like the physical aspects of the transfiguration. In Matthew 17, verse 2, Matthew says, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. I love that. That's my favorite physical detail of the transfiguration. Jesus' face begins to shine like with the brightness of the sun. His appearance was changed in that pure, bright, holy light began to emanate from him. So much so, again, that it was like the sun. Pure light is shining from him against the background of a Palestinian night sky. Up on a high mountain, the Lord Jesus begins to shine. That's awesome. I love that so much. Just brightness coming from him. And he's shining so brightly that Mark says in verse 3, his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Why? Sounds like he's had like a laundry problem, right? Why would he mention some, no one can bleach them? What he's saying is this is not normal. You can't get this naturally. This is a supernatural brightness on his clothing. Luke puts it more strongly. I actually prefer how Luke put it. He says his clothing became dazzling white. And the idea is dazzling like lightning. Right, that's what Luke has in mind here. That's how Luke describes it. His clothing becomes like lightning. So the glory of Christ is shining so brightly that it even lights up his very clothing and makes them shine like lightning flashes through the sky. This is a glorious scene. These three disciples are getting a front row seat to the glory and majesty of the Lord Jesus. And what's amazing is that Jesus isn't reflecting light like the moon does the sun. He's not reflecting anything. Remember, this is nighttime. There's no light to reflect. Rather, as Matthew says, he is shining like the sun. What does that mean? It means the light is coming from within himself, like the light comes from the sun. It's emanating out from him. And what's going on in this moment is that the veil, many commentators put it this way, the veil of Christ's humanity is being pulled back, in a sense. And the divine nature of Christ is being allowed to shine through at full strength. See, Paul tells us in Philippians 2, he took on the form of, of a servant. Right? He really did take a human nature to himself. I'm not denying that. But he took on the form of a servant. Ordinarily, when you looked at Jesus, you just saw a normal man. And as we confessed, he is truly human. But he's also truly God. And now, for a while, his divine nature is allowed to shine forth and break out into the darkness of the night. As John said in John 1, the light of the world had come. The light shines in the darkness. I think maybe he had some of that in mind, especially whenever John, uh, in chapter 1 of the Gospel of John, says, we have, we have seen his glory. Right? We've seen his glory. So again, his glory is on display here. His power and majesty are being clearly perceived. His divine nature is, in a sense, seen by his disciple, disciples. You know, the psalmist actually says something that's relevant here, I think. In Psalm 104, verses 1 and 2, we read, 
Bless Yahweh, that is God's proper name. Bless Yahweh, O my soul. O Yahweh, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. That's how God's described by the psalmist, covering himself with light. He clothes himself in light. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 6 tells us that God dwells in unapproachable light. So in this moment, we're supposed to see very clearly that Jesus is God, that he has the divine nature, that as the old creed says, he is true God of true God, light of light. Right? The God who wraps himself in light, the God who dwells in light is now standing and, and shining before these three disciples up on this high mountain. They went up on the mountain to receive revelation from God and now they are seeing it in the face of Christ. And a quick note here, what a glorious thing to see. Christ expressing his divinity, his glory shining through. Let this be a reminder to us, I'm stealing this, I think it was Matthew Henry put, it, put something like this. Let this be a reminder that the sufferings of Christ were undertaken by him voluntarily. Remember the context. He's just prophesied six days earlier that he is going to suffer and be violently murdered. That he's going to be slaughtered. Let this scene thus far be a reminder that his suffering was taken on voluntarily. The one who is light, God incarnate, the Lord Jesus, would suffer, but he would do so by consent. As he says later in his ministry, no one takes his life, but he lays it down of his own accord. And he did so in order to save sinners because he's full of mercy. As the disciples beheld the glory of Christ, they should have seen Something should have clicked for them that nobody could make this glorious one suffer unless he allowed it. He could blind them any moment that he so chose. He is God. So even though he would suffer, he is still in control and he is voluntarily consenting to suffering. More than that, this should have helped the disciples to realize that he is too glorious to remain in the grave. He is God. Right? He will indeed be raised. The light so glorious cannot stay hidden in a tomb. Right? So there may be suffering for a while, as Jesus had predicted for himself and for his disciples. But here we see that his glory is too great for the suffering to last forever. Rather, after suffering will come blinding glory. But as Jesus is standing before them, shining in his glory, some visitors come don't they? In verse 4, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now this, in my opinion, is the strangest thing about the transfiguration, right? It just kind of is. It always strikes me as a, a bit odd, but once you give it some thought, this is, this is amazing as well, and it's a great testimony to who Jesus is. We now see two of the most godly men who have ever walked the face of the earth appear and begin to speak with Jesus. We have Moses, the one who received the law of God on Mount Sinai, the one who wrote the Torah, right? That's the first five books of the Old Testament. Moses is coming. Moses is the representative of the law of God. He was the great lawgiver under God. And then we have Elijah, a great prophet. In Jewish thought, especially in the first century, Elijah was considered one of the greatest prophets. So Elijah represents the lineage of of all the prophets, considering that they, they, they thought he was the greatest one. So what we have then in Moses and Elijah appearing on the mountain are the representatives of the law and the prophets coming to Jesus. Right? And if you guys know this, 
Uh, if you know Jewish culture at all, the law and the prophets was a Jewish way of referring to the whole of the Old Testament. And now we see these two men who are representatives of the scriptures, of the law and the prophets, now speaking with Jesus. In my opinion, again, this is a bit debated, what they represent, why these two men. It's a bit debated, but in my opinion, this is meant to be a symbol to the disciples who are there on the mountain that the law and the prophets find their fulfillment in the shining one who's standing before them, in Jesus. That the Old Testament scriptures are about him, that he's the one that they foretold. Prophesied in generations past, the Redeemer of Israel has come, and he is Jesus. Jesus is the one to whom all the scriptures point to. He's the one in whom all the promises of God find their yes and amen, as the Apostle Paul said. Christ is the centerpiece of the entire plan of God. He's the promised one. He is the Messiah. He's the one that we have been waiting on since the fall in Genesis 3. Let me exalt the Lord for a minute. He is the serpent crusher who was promised. He is the descendant of Abraham, who will bless the nations. He is the great king, who was promised to come from Judah. He is the son, who was promised to David, that would reign forever as king over God's people. He is the great prophet, that Moses promised to the Israelites. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah. He is the great shepherd of Ezekiel. He is the one. He's the one, to whom all the law and all the prophets pointed to. He is the Son of God, the Son of Man. He is the Christ. He's the one. And the law and the prophets, Elijah and Moses, are bearing witness to him. I love this picture. And again, I'm not, I'm not saying it's not a historical account. I mean, that again, it's a picture. This actually happened. I love this scene. Because in, in my opinion, this is like as if Jesus is holding court with the law and the prophets. Remember, they've come to him. Right? He'd go to them, but they've come down to him to speak with him. He's the bright and shining one here in this scene. And Moses and Elijah, esteemed, as esteemed as they are, are speaking to him. That They're not shining. right? By comparison, though they were in glory as well, as Luke tells us, I'm sure they looked like ordinary men in comparison to the one who's shining as bright as the sun, as respectable as they were. Both of these men, Elijah and Moses, during their earthly lives, spoke with God up on a mountain. And now they're on a different mountain speaking with Jesus. This screams the divine superiority of Jesus Christ over everyone in the Old Testament. This is divine superiority. He is truly God. And they're speaking with him. But what are they talking about? Luke tells us in Luke chapter 9, verse 31 that they were talking about Jesus' departure, or exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That's what they're talking to Jesus about. Of all the things they could talk to Jesus about, they're talking about his upcoming death, resurrection, and ascension. That's what they're talking to Jesus about. Again, that he accomplished all of this at Jerusalem and eventually exited this world, made his great exodus, his departure, at Jerusalem. And I imagine that they're speaking to Jesus about this stuff, encouraging him to complete the work that he had begun. If you'll allow me to speculate for a minute. They're speaking about his death, resurrection, and ascension. I can imagine they're saying, Jesus, you know what is written. You know what the law and the prophets say. You know that you are the chosen one. You know that you're the promised one, the one that we foreshadowed, the one we spoke of. You're the chosen one of God. You must go to the cross. You must continue 
You must suffer for the sins of God's people. You must do the work of redemption. You know that your Father has set you to it. And consider the glory that will come from it. Your resurrection, your ascension to the throne, the fulfillment of the plan of God, the salvation of God's elect, the glory of God. You can imagine them encouraging Christ to this work. And just a quick aside here, this isn't in my notes. The human nature of Jesus would need encouraged. He's truly human. I imagine that this, as much as it's meant to encourage us as the disciples of Christ, this whole thing was meant to encourage Jesus according to his human nature, the only nature that can be encouraged. We're about to hear God speak. That had to have encouraged Christ to continue on. We're seeing the law and the prophets speak to Christ. I guarantee you that encouraged him according to his human nature. But as Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus, Peter speaks up. Verses 5 and 6, And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. All right, so Peter just blurts out, this is great. <laughs> right? Like, let's stay here. I don't want to go anywhere else. Let's make some tents, one for each of you three. Let's stay up here on the mountain. This is dope. Right? This is awesome. I don't ever want to leave. Again, I think Peter wants to stay up on the mountain. Understandable. This is the most glorious thing that he has ever seen thus far in his life. It won't be the most glorious thing he's ever seen by the end, but up to this point, this is the most glorious thing he's seen. Like, who wouldn't have a knee-jerk reaction to prolong it? Right? Or, or, or maybe Peter is just trying to be respectful. Right? He wants to do something useful for such honorable men. He wants to respect them and give them each a shelter to stay in rather than having to stand around outside. Right? And if that's the case, just a quick thing to think about Peter's being a bit foolish because one of those three men is not like the other ones but he wants to give them all the same thing something to think about but whatever the subconscious reason for Peter blurting this out the text says that he didn't know what to say right Luke tells us in Luke 9 that Peter did not know what he was saying and that's because Peter and the other two disciples were, were absolutely terrified you can understand that right like, this is a pretty common expression whenever you behold the glory of God. Or read, read your Bible, right? Everyone's always scared to death, almost universally, right? There are some exceptions, but almost everyone is always terrified. They are beholding the very glory of God in the face of Christ. They're seeing two men who had lived centuries and centuries ago right in front of them, right? Alive and well, and that's because God is God of the living, right? There's a life after this one. He sees them alive and well in front of them. Their rabbi, Jesus, is shining like the sun with lightning clothes, right? You, you get it. They, you'd be scared too. This is a heavenly scene, and Peter doesn't know what to say, but as is the custom with Peter, he feels like he has to say something, whether right or wrong, right? But he doesn't. He just needs to listen. So quick note here, when you don't know what to say, just shut up, right? Peter would have done well to, to note that. Um, every account says Peter just didn't know what he was saying because he was scared to death. He'd have been better off to be quiet. But as Peter is talking, he's interrupted, Luke tells us. He's interrupted by something. Verse 7 says, and a cloud overshadowed them. Matthew 17 tells us it was a bright cloud. And remember, it's nighttime. So this bright, beautiful cloud descends upon the mountain at night. A gloriously bright cloud descends and it overshadows or covers Jesus, Elijah, Moses, Peter, James, and John. 
Now, if you know your Old Testament very well, you know what's going on here, don't you? This is the Shekinah. This is the glory of God descending upon this mountain. Right? A visible manifestation. This is the glory cloud of God. A visible manifestation of God's dwelling among men. In the Old Testament, God was often pleased to make himself manifest or visibly some visible token of his presence through a glorious cloud. At the end of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 40, you read of the cloud covering the tabernacle and God's glory filling the tabernacle. In 1 Kings chapter 8, we see this cloud of God's glory filling the newly finished temple so much that people couldn't go in because the glory of God had descended upon the temple in 1 Kings 8. And now here in Mark chapter 9, we see a bright cloud coming down on this mountain and covering everyone on it. God the Father has just shown up to bear witness to his son. And now the Father speaks. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. This is the high point of the revelation on the mountain. The Father speaks concerning his son. And what he says, we must hear. Hear this. He says, this is my son. And let this be something uh, or rather, rather, this tells us something important about the nature of Christ. Let there be no ambiguity any longer. This line from the Father tells us that Jesus is truly God. I'm stealing this from Charles Spurgeon. By being called Son by God, we see that Jesus is of the same nature as God and is truly God himself. Spurgeon said, a man is the father of a man. A man isn't the father of something that he makes with his hands, like a statue or a painting. But a man is the father of one having the same nature as himself. And God is the father of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So since God the Father has chosen to describe Jesus Christ with the language of Son, we are to see clearly that Jesus is truly God come in the flesh. And as such, he is to receive the same honor and worship as the Father. Very clearly, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, He is the radiance or the brightness of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That is, deity dwells in him because he is God. But the Father doesn't just say, this is my son. He says, this is my beloved son. Jesus is the beloved of the Father. We get, maybe we don't think, maybe you never thought about it this way. This is an intimate picture of the relationship between the Father and the Son here. In saying, He is my beloved Son, the Father is saying, This one right here in front of you, I love Him. There's no one, I have no one else like Him. He's the one closest to my heart. He is my special one, like the monogenes, the unique one, the only begotten of the Father. This is my beloved Son. Hear this. The Father actually loves the Son with an intensity that we cannot begin to fathom. Whatever you feel for your children, as strong as it is, is nothing compared to the love of God for His Son. His Love for Christ is perfect, and it is absolute. Jesus is the beloved of God. Matthew expands it a bit more and records the Father saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Just like he spoke 
at Christ's baptism. God is making it plain to the disciples, I delight in him. Everything he does, I am overjoyed with him at all times. He pleases me more than anyone else. He delights in me, and I delight in him. Again, Jesus always pleases the Father, and the Father makes that explicitly clear. And what does that mean? Everything that Jesus, that this will be important, remember, keep in mind the context. Jesus has just given the call to discipleship, and he said, you're going to suffer if you answer my call. And here the Father says, everything my son does, everything he says, delights me. Everything about him delights the Father. God's truly pleased with him. And Luke adds a final thing. In Luke's version of these events, Luke says, this is my son. Or rather, the father says, this is my son, my chosen one. What a precious thing for us to hear. Jesus is the chosen one of God. The one whom God the Father has hand-selected for what? For his people and the work of their redemption to reign over them. He's the chosen Messiah, the Redeemer and Savior of the people of God. He is the chosen sacrifice whom the Father will crush in place of sinners. He is the chosen prophet who reveals the Father perfectly to his people. He is the chosen King of the cosmos that the Father has appointed, who will judge the world and rule on God's behalf. He's the chosen one. In all of these things, I want you to see this. Jesus is the joy of his Father. He's the one in whom the Father delights, the one the Father has chosen, the one the Father has sent into the world to redeem it, the one who is truly God, who has taken on human flesh. The Father could not give us a higher recommendation of the Lord Jesus. There's nothing higher than this that the Father could have spoken concerning Jesus Christ. The identity and character of Jesus Again, I know I'm laboring the point. It's put on full display. We don't lack anything with regard to how we should view him and understand him. He has the full approval of his father. But what are we to do with him? What are we to do with Jesus in light of this revelation from the father? Only one command is given. Listen to him. That's all the father says. He says, here's who he is. Listen to him. There's your one command. In light of who he is, the beloved son of God, we are to listen to him. And when the father says listen, he doesn't mean listen to the sound of his literal voice. Right? Just hear. Right? Parents, come on. You tell your kids, listen to me. What do you mean? Obey me. Do what I say. Believe what I'm telling you. The father says, listen to my son. You obey him. You believe what he says. You do what he says. You listen to him. He is trustworthy. He is supremely trustworthy. He's God. He's just received the highest commendation from the Father that he could possibly, possibly be given. And then we're told, listen to him. He's trustworthy. You can trust him with your life. You can trust him with your death. You can trust him with your eternity. You can trust his word in all things. The Father has spoken and he's testified to Christ, and not only Christ, but his message. The Father has testified to his trustworthiness and has given his unequivocal seal of approval. Notice, when the Father says, listen to him, there are no limits placed upon the command, is there? 
Not, not a one. We are not told to listen to Jesus in some things, but you can disregard him in others. No, the Father has given the Son unlimited authority. And we are to listen to him and believe him and obey him in all things. You listen to him. You follow him. Let me say that again in light of the context. Christ has just said, follow me and you will suffer. But now the Father says, listen to him. You follow him. You go after him. Not the world. Not another teacher. Not another religious leader or figure. Not yourself. Not the culture. But Jesus alone. You listen to him. You believe him. And you believe his message. That he saved sinners by his death and resurrection. And that he is ruling king. And that he's going to conquer the nations. You believe and obey him. In all that he's commanded. You follow him wherever he leads. Again, I keep saying it. Remember the context in which this is being said. Even if he leads you into suffering for his sake, you listen to him. That's the point here. Listen to him. You follow him anyway. You keep listening to him. We need to hear this. The Father says we must always listen to his Son. We are to listen to the master's voice and disregard all other noise. Even should he call us to follow him into misery and pain. Even if he should call us to take up a cross. Even if he should call us to forsake everything for him and be considered the scum of the earth and the worst Americans in the nation, we are to listen to him anyway. Because he is the son of God and his word is true. Now we come to our final verse, verse 8. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Matthew records that after hearing the voice that the three disciples fell to the ground in terror. But then Jesus came and touched them and said, rise and have no fear. That's a sermon in and of itself. But he says, rise, get up, don't be afraid. And then they lift their heads and look around as Mark says. And what do they see? Jesus. Only Jesus. Only Jesus remained. Why? Because this whole account is just about Jesus. He's the centerpiece of everything. They're to follow him, remember? He takes precedence over everything. The glorious transfiguration is now over. Elijah and Moses are gone. The cloud is gone. And the heavens are silent. It's just Jesus alone with his disciples. And I think Mark notes this in an emphatic kind of way. And I, I think it's so that we can be reminded that Jesus, the transfigured and glorious one, the one whom the law and the prophets come to and point to, the one whom God loves, the son of God, he and he alone is to be the one that we are most concerned with. Jesus only. And this really just enforces the command of the Father, doesn't it? Listen to him. Not them. Him. And that's no slight to Elijah or Moses. They would tell you the same thing. Listen to him. Please hear me, Christian. I know that being a disciple can be scary, especially in a country that hates you because you love the Lord. I'm not being a fear monger. You're a fool if you don't think that this country as a whole hates you because you love Christ 
or you've just not been open enough about being a disciple. Just throwing that out there to you. Don't be foolish. This country hates God and hates you by extension should you make it known that you follow him. It's frightening sometimes to consider that your job could be on the line depending on whether or not you'll be faithful to Jesus as a disciple. It's terrifying to think about the possibility of your children being taken from you in the future if you refuse to get in line with a government that hates God. To be in the minority, to know that even though, even, rather even those who appear to be your allies at times are really just conservative enemies of God, that can really wear you down to recognize you have no allies in the world, no true allies at the root. It's hard to know that unless God grants national repentance, we and our spiritual descendants are going to suffer for Christ in this country. It's hard to know that. But know this. If Jesus says he will make it worth it for us in the end, listen to him. Listen to him. If Jesus says that your suffering will bring with it an eternal weight of glory, you listen to him. If Jesus tells you that though you suffer now at their hands, his enemies will one day be conquered and judged, listen to him. If Jesus warns you to persevere in faith and faithfulness, or you will perish like the rest, listen to him. If Jesus promises to be with you always, even unto the end of the age, listen to him. If Jesus promises future glory to his saints, listen to him. If he promises a kingdom that will know no end, that will conquer all of the kingdoms until it can be said the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, then you believe him. You listen to him. Dear Christian, look at this text and see the one whom you have committed your life to. See his glory. The glory of God. See his person. See the testimony born from heaven concerning him. See his power. See his brightness. See his majesty. See him. This glorious Christ is the one we follow. This glorious king is the one we belong to even if his glory is not completely manifested now, this is the glorious one we follow. So be encouraged by this text and be encouraged to follow Jesus, even though suffering will come to you on his account. Know this, Jesus really is God. He is the Son of God. All things really do point to him. He is the centerpiece of all the word and works of God. He really is the beloved one of God. And you are in him, therefore you are beloved of God. He really does have all authority, and future glory really is coming. The transfiguration was just a foretaste of the glory that is to come. In the transfiguration of Christ, God provides assurance to us that trouble will not always be the lot of his son or his people. Now, Jesus would still have to suffer the death of the cross. Make no mistake about that. He has not done that yet at this point in the gospel. And we, as his people, will still have to suffer for his name's sake. But our suffering, rather, suffering will not always be our lot, just as suffering was not always the lot of the Son of God. 
When hardship tempts us to despair and give up, we must remember this glorious Jesus whose bright glory in this passage anticipates the future glory of the kingdom of God in which we will share with him. Matthew Henry put it this way, a sight of Christ's glory while we are here in this world is a good preparative for our sufferings with him as these are preparatives for the sight of his glory in the other world. So let these things encourage you as discipleship becomes costly. Remember these things. Jesus really is worthy. Jesus really is trustworthy. We must listen to him. And future glory is coming. This is the word of God to us from this text. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word that is just balm to our souls, that, that stokes fire in our hearts, that allows us to see your son. We thank you for letting us see a picture of his glory here in the scriptures. And we ask that you would seal it to our hearts so that whatever comes upon us, that we, would rem that we would be able to remember and recall the glorious one whose face shines like the sun, whom the law and the prophets bow down before, whom you have spoken, Father, this is your son. We must listen to him. I'm sure, Lord, that Peter remembered this as he was in prison. And James and John remembered this as they suffered. They remembered what they saw. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to remember what we've read, the majestic Christ we've seen as suffering comes to us. Bless us and grant us perseverance as we keep our eye on Jesus Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. We pray this in his name. Amen.